And you're leading us through it, this book that you're reading. This book that I bought for you that you still haven't read. I was planning on it. You're listening to Deeper Magic. All right, okay. so what, what are what you is saying? Happening? What are you saying is the point? The point of this episode really is answering the question of how do we, like, who's why are we staying we and who do we, why? yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we can't answer that question in its entirety in this episode, but we can at least get started. Shockingly, right. no. Now, one thing I should probably never, ever say out loud is how often I've assigned books in the classroom. That you haven't read. <laughs> I didn't yeah. say it. See, I said I should never say it, and uh-huh. I didn't say it. Did I, I think this podcast actually started by now, didn't it? I walked into Jesse's dorm yesterday, and okay. Allie was sitting there, and she looks at me, and she goes, hey, which translation of Song of Solomon do you think is going to make your dad the most uncomfortable? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I got you. And so she and I went upstairs, and we started reading translations of Song of Solomon. Oh, And gosh. I pointed her towards Goblin Market. Because she said that the last um, section of her essay is about the corruption of sexuality. Oh, right. Okay. Um, it is. And I assigned Market, it, so I do know. Oh, well, you, you never yeah. know with you. Um, you just said that you assigned <laughs> I, books. That you I did read. not say it. You said it. I just didn't <laughs> deny it. <laughs> That's all. Um, but Goblin Market is a Christina Rossetti poem that uses all of the language of Song of Solomon, but... In Wait, is that the one that you did in Edinburgh? That I wrote my essay. I on. was just gonna say, I yeah. remember so this. I That's a hard Goblin essay. Market, and I was like, there you go, because it's taken the Song of Solomon, which is technically like rightly ordered sexuality, right? And it takes the language of Song of Solomon and puts it in a very twisted context. No, oh, right, yeah, and that sense. is a twisted essay for sure. But yeah, no. Song of Solomon yeah. is, that's like... Well, and I wouldn't say Goblin Market is a twisted poem. I think it's actually a really, really beautiful poem. Right. Because the, the essence of the poem is it's the two sisters, right? And and they can hear the call of the goblin men who are selling their fruits, which is a super lengthy metaphor for sex. Um, yeah, and, no, I remember this when you wrote the essay on this. Yeah. It was well done. And one of the sisters eats of the fruit and the other sister goes and basically goes through like a crucifixion of sorts but because she's a woman and it's more about like sexuality in victorian times and the redemption of women is it's like her crucifixion has kind of more assault sort of overtones to it yep and through that she is able to bring the redeemed fruit back to her sister and heal her and redeem her yeah totally but the but the fruit that the goblin men are selling is corrupted sexuality I mean, and I never remember poems or essays, and I thought it was kind of in between. And I remember that one pretty vividly because of, of the starkness of the story. And um, but you, you bring it's up, beautiful. yeah, you bring up Song of Solomon. That was actually probably somewhere between rated R and rated X material. I would say NC mm-hmm. NC seventeen, probably young Are Jewish we boys. This in the podcast, well, I don't know. I? Because this, this, this is not what we're talking no, about. No, but this today. It's, uh, it's just but what we're talking about now. But you are the expert, apparently. <laughs> yeah, so. Indeed. They didn't let Jewish boys, some people say until yeah. the age of like 13 to 15, some people say not until their 20s could they read Song of Solomon. So for those people that think it's just some sort of tame little metaphor about Jesus no, and his totally church, not. Um, it, yeah, it's not that at all. Anyway, we should start this podcast. Yep. Unless that was the start. I guess. Unless we're now doing a podcast on sex. No, we are definitely. Are we? No, no, no. Not right now. Maybe later. <laughs> maybe. Because I'm down. I maybe have no issue talking later. about that. Uh, well, like, I don't either. I talk about it all. I, you talk about sexuality while I'm sitting in the room and your entire head turns red. <laughs> That's, that is true. Yes. 
But I've been teaching that for eight years now, and we talk about everything in that class. It just gets uh-huh. a little dicier when my own kids are in there. That's the only thing. Yeah, that's so, fair. So that's what are we... T- but we are talking a little bit today about um, a book that really was meaningful to you as you're rebuilding your faith, or even maybe starting. Yeah. I don't even want to say rebuilding, because you didn't ever get deconstructed. Uh... You Would you say you got deconstructed, or would you say that you never really had... Yeah. a great starting point. And then this was a really helpful starting point for you that I think actually would be a helpful starting point for a lot of people. Yeah. I would say, first of all, uh, when you said that you were never really deconstructed, I once again wished for about the 80th time that we had a visual component of this podcast because the face that I made was yeah, so true. loud, um, <laughs> but nobody could see it, obviously. First of all, yeah, I would say my faith got super deconstructed um, in the sense that I didn't... Well... But the faith thing, I mean, your mom did so much beautiful shepherding interview in the household growing, you know, so you you probably, can we say it this way? You might've had a different experience in the household than you did when you were going to more of the institutional church stuff that I was always a part of when I was doing so much pastoral ministry. Is that, is that fair that the house was different than the church? I don't know. I, I don't know that I would say that that's the case. I think that I, uh, as a lot of people very understandably do. I think I took what I was learning in the institutional church. I think I didn't have the tools to recognize that what I was being taught was different <laughs> than what we're going to talk about today. Right. Um, that, that what I was being taught in the church was separate from the God that I was being called to worship. And so I kind of threw it all out. And then even the stuff that mom taught us at home about about Christianity and religion, which I would say pulls a lot from like spirituality as well, like like especially some Celtic spirituality. Uh, a lot of Celtic with, spirituality. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily saying that we're druids and we worship Celtic spirits or whatever, but just the like. <laughs> I kind the, of would like to the, be a druid, actually. Right? <laughs> kind of be fun, um, but the the mysticism of Celtic spirituality right. was kind of what we pulled from as a way of understanding God. But I think I didn't know how to recognize that those were two separate things. So I so you threw said away both what you grew things, up with. And right, I see. I, played the part. You the conflated whole thing, the two. But I, I did not. I believed that there was a God, mm-hmm. but I didn't want anything to do with it. Hmm. So looking back, so I back, didn't really have deconstruction, but I kind of walked away from it. And then yeah. once I came back to God, that was when my deconstruction started happening. Because I was like, suddenly my experience of God is incredibly different from what I have been taught my experience of God would mm. be like. Yeah. Which means that maybe what I was being taught is wrong, not that I don't want anything to do with this God. Hmm. Did you ever go through a phase, uh, a quiet phase? We've never talked about this, so okay. I'm just asking you point blank um, here. Did you ever go through a phase where not only were you sort of walking away from all versions of Christianity that you've been taught, whether the the kind of household we tried to raise you in or... Mm. The church, and, and we are obviously were part of a lot of different church communities just from my pastoral ministry and professor time. So you, you experienced a lot of different kinds of churches, but in the midst of walking away from all versions of that, were you ever upset with your mom and me and our version of faith as well? Hmm. Hmm. That's a tricky question. Well, I've never asked the question yeah, before. Because I think my answer would be yes and no. Yes, but not in the way that you're asking about. No, so I'm not asking the right way. No, you're not. <laughs> um, but what else? Okay, so, why don't you channel um, your inner me and ask the question? Okay. Yeah, I you just hold say, your own little monologue with yourself right now. I would say that I wasn't 
it wasn't that I like resented what I was taught growing up or like resented either of you for trying to teach me that. Yeah. I think mostly because I I did believe that it was real in some capacity. And so I was like, yeah, I, I wasn't mad about the fact that you guys had taught me about God or I wasn't mad about what specifically you were teaching me about God. The thing that more like pricked at me for a number of years was when I kind of walked away from all of that. And and part of this is my own fault because I didn't really tell you guys this, but when I sort of walked away from that and your guys' response and expectation of how I was going about my life mm-hmm. was as though I hadn't walked away from that. Oh, interesting. So that was I do blame more you. What I didn't I, know that you Yeah, no, away. it was really my own fault. I should have said something. <laughs> no, but, that's super fair. <laughs> but it was really more like, when I would come to you guys with something hard and you would be like, have you prayed about it? And I'm like, leave me alone. <laughs> you don't want anything about it. Because I, I was like, I just, I just want to know how to tell my friend that I'm mad at her and you want me to pray about it and that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, it was more that. That's where totally, I, that's I wasn't fair. like, man, I can't believe my parents taught me this stupid backwards way of thinking. Like it totally was never that at all. Mm-hmm. It was just like every time that you tell me to pray, about what I'm going through right now, I just get so mad because it's never relevant to what I'm actually trying to figure out. And then we sit there and we read the Bible for 30 minutes. And we I'm like, never read the Bible. I'm sorry. Circle time. Minutes. Circle time. Right. Every morning. And so I'm like, and I'm just sitting there thinking about when I can go and eat my breakfast. And you guys so are you- both sitting there like, what's your takeaway from the scripture? And I'm like, that I'm hungry. <laughs> Um, so you were, you were at a season of bitterness for a while. Mm-hmm. How long, so how old were you when you were like, if we were to, if we were at peak bitterness, like when the thermometer of bitterness mm-hmm. like goes way up and, and it peaked and would you say it was more of a gradual climb or a quick spike? Did you, did you gradually climb, climb into your, your peak bitterness phase? I think I was apathetic about a lot of it okay. for, gosh, for a long time. I like probably from... 10 or 11, like that's as early as I can remember yeah, where, where that fair. was the response of like, mom says we have to do circle time, but I really just kind of want to go outside. So we're just going to sit here. And then when I'm done with this, I can go outside. But it wasn't like a, like a, yeah, I'm going to do circle time and I'm going to connect with God and like all those things. Like I was already apathetic about it at hmm. that point. And then I think probably around oof, 15, probably 15 until about 18 yeah. Was when I was like properly bitter about it. And I was like, Yeah, you went through some hard times. I, I sure mean, you did. Really, you really yeah. did. You really, those are, those are tricky years for everybody. I mean, I, I think yeah. as, as parents, right? It, it's, it's not exactly make it up as you go along, but it, there's a lot of trial and error and, and best laid plans and thoughts and ideas and dreams and hopes. And it just, there's, it, you don't always know what you're doing. We'll just say it that way. Yeah. Uh, and, totally. and, and I think looking back, I think you navigated that about as well as you can in today's sort of realm. There, less, I'm sure yeah. there's all kinds of things that you would do differently. There's all kinds of things I would do differently too. But maybe among the many things that it speaks of is that life is so much a, like a long game kind of thing. Totally. And so you stay with somebody for the long haul. You don't, I, I'm guessing there's any number of people listening to Deeper Magic that have kids or grandkids that have walked away. You know, this has been so much we've talked about, oh, right? Yeah, walking away. definitely. And, and, and I think there's this understandable concern that you want to have everything fixed in the moment. 
Mm-hmm. And har- I can't think of hardly any situation where something gets fixed in the moment. But just, but to, no, of course to your credit, and I know your mom and I too, like we decided to stay together in all of that. It just in, even though that there's a lot of disagreements and there's a lot of nights where, you know, we didn't really even talk all of that much. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but there is a long game play here. Let's just keep playing this out and not do something stupid in the moment when we're feeling insecure as parents or you're feeling bitter as a, as an adolescent or whatever. Yeah, totally. Uh, I, I'm, I'm grateful that some of those things didn't happen, but even if they would have, you still stay with the journey uh, and, yeah. and for as long as it takes to be with somebody. And it doesn't even mean that you're going to get the outcome that you want. You just stay, the, stay with the journey. Uh, yeah. I think is the most important thing. So. Yeah, totally. And I think, to clarify, I still do get mad at you when you tell me to pray about things. But <laughs> I think it's more... Have you prayed about point. being mad about praying about things? Because I think you should pray. Oh, so much. <laughs> I think you should every pray night, about that. Every single I, night. <laughs> yep. I go and I sit outside on the concrete of our front porch. You should. Like a monk. You and should. I sit there in the cold. Can I shave your and head? And I pray... I could shave your head. My, <laughs> that, <laughs> that'll take you almost no cut. time at all. I think that would be really fun. Yeah, yeah. I thought about it. You can go GI Jane. Terrify me so much. No, you I need a, you need a GI Jane moment. Just a one it season would be of GI Jane. Just once. I think the only thing for me is that it would suck so much to have to grow it out if I didn't like it. Yes, you've been working like, on growing out your hair for a I long have. time. It's getting pretty yeah. long. It's getting pretty long. Um, but yeah. So it's like, but now when I get mad when you were mom or like, have you prayed about that yet? Um, it's less because I'm like, no, because I don't want to. And I don't yes. think that that's going to help anything. And that's stupid. So I'm not going to do that. And can you offer me some real advice for once? <laughs> um, it, it's less that now and more about like, I don't know whether or not that will help, mm-hmm. but I know it's an option that I have now. That's Yeah, I get it. And it doesn't mean that it's going to give uh, me an answer, right. but it is something that I could turn to. And more often than not, I don't turn towards that. Yeah. I think we have such a misunderstanding about prayer too. And, oh, and, and I'm not saying that I suddenly have a clarity of understanding by which I could offer in contrast to the misunderstanding, but I'm I'm yeah. pretty well confident that I live in a lot of misunderstandings about prayer. I think one thing Dallas Willard said at one point where trying to take some of the mystery out of it and just simply talking to God about your day, that at least takes some of the formality out of it and some of the um, some of the theater out of it a little bit. And, and that's a yeah. different podcast for a different time to just talk about. So what does it mean? Well, it's the, what was the prayer that, is it Tim Yearsley who was talking about it? Yes. Yeah. The, the, um, oh, Whatever yeah. that prayer was the, uh, about. Why I have expecto patronum in my mind right now, and I'm a hundred percent confident it's not expecto patronum. It's not patronum. that. I can tell you that much right yeah. now. Yeah. What? what? But, but that prayer where you sit down and you I, talk why are we both losing that? Because it was such a good the exa- the examine prayer. The ex- examine. Thank yes, you. Because that's, that's what it is. such examine a good prayer. prayer. Yes. But the one where you talk about like where are the moments that I expecto patronum was not that far off. Expecto patronum. Well, and like with the idea of the patronus being a happy memory yeah, and like see? all of that. Yeah. No, I think you're. I think you're on board with that. I almost had it there. We did just out ourselves as fake Christians for having read Harry Potter, but you know, that's okay. All of that aside. So yeah, my deconstruction part of my faith journey didn't come until after I already had relationship with God. And then it came because of the disparity between my experience of God and what I'd been taught in the church. Mm -hmm. And I was like, if I'm going to pick one of these things to be like, that doesn't seem right, it's probably not going to be God. It's probably going to be the theology that I was taught, Mm -hmm. Um, which is already something that most people that I know don't know how to think about. And so they warp God to fit their ideas of theology instead of deconstructing their theology to fit their experience of God. Yeah, I think that's that interplay. And, and, and 
I look back at what at the kind of environment your mom was creating and and does create in our in our home, which really is meant to be experiential of God. And and I think that there is a combo. I mean, the fancy terminology for this, if I can channel my inner seminary professor oh, for a fun. second. Yeah, I know, I know. All right, Dr. Kessler, All right, here we take go. it so, away. <laughs> so there is this, um, what's called a dialectic or a tension or a relationship between theology from above and theology yeah. from below is how it gets talked about. And theology above in that camp and in, in, in language. That's not a Thomas Aquinas, isn't it? Mm, that I don't know. I don't know the origin like of this. Divine law and well, law and all of that? Not, or is that more the... Yeah, not exactly. Theology, I Theology guess. from above okay. would be a little bit more considered to be uh, revelatory, meaning that we were given a revelation of some kind. So if you were Islamic, theology from above would be the Quran that, that Muhammad was given in a series mm-hmm. of visits from the angel Gabriel. If you're Mormon... Uh, theology from above would be the revelation of having dug up a bunch of tablets on the eastern seaboard of the United States. Um, but if you're if you're Christian, the revelatory dimension um, would be the both the uh, the Old and the New Testament of the Bible. If you're Jewish, it would be Torah. I was going to make a joke about how a lot of Christians forget about the Old Testament, yeah, know, and I then know. I decided not yeah. to. But so, here we are. So there's this theology, and, and you you are invited to have your experiences shaped by your theology from above. But at the same time, oftentimes our understanding of the revelation or the understanding in our case, being Christian, the understanding of the Bible is, is a, is a profound misunderstanding. And so then our experiences (laughs) of God, like how we experience God and other people in this world can go back and help us not change what the Bible says, but maybe say, wait, because the Bible is not the easiest thing to interpret. And and we're all living in misunderstandings of it in, in a lot of ways. And so when we have experiences of God that are very different than what our theology of God is, that's where theology from below helps inform our theology from above, if that makes a sense. It makes yeah, sense. So, totally. so the revelation helps shape our experience, but then our experience helps go back and oftentimes reinterpret the revelation of our lives too. And I just think so many people end up rejecting God as a, when, they, when they're rejecting ideas yeah. about God. And that distinction is so unbelievably important is that it's one thing to reject a, a theological framework that maybe needs to be rejected. It's a whole other thing to just say, I'm, I'm done with God. But your experience um, or your rebuilding really required theology from below kind of experience. Like totally you, you needed to be able to experience God. And I think most people do because if, if your life is just about ideas about God, then there's always the threat that better ideas or different ideas are going to deconstruct yeah. your ideas. Yep. And and at the end of the day, this is meant to be a relationally based experience with God as we do our life in this world. So I, yeah, it, it was just, and so we've got this book you and I are going to talk about yeah. and, and have a couple sections to work through for the rest of this podcast. That was really interesting as how you began to say yes to this whole journey again from maybe a different angle than most people appreciate. Totally. And part of what I love this about this book is as it came during a time when when I was involved in some pretty heavy deconstruction of theology mm-hmm. and was kind of struggling, or not really struggling, but I was just working hard to keep my ideas of theology and my ideas of God separate mm-hmm. at the at the moment. Um, part of why I love this book is it's called Unapologetic. It's by Francis Spufford, which is such a good name. It is a good um, name. But the kind of subtitle of it is why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. And this, part of the reason why I loved it so much was it was not a book about theology. It was a book about the emotional response of Christianity 
and about like emotionally and instinctually why we believe what we believe, not theologically or intellectually. And as somebody who had grown up in the church and had grown up as a, as a young woman in the church being patronized and talked down to and everything was pretty and fluffy and isn't God great, except for sometimes maybe when he wants to send you to hell, but like mostly you're a depraved sinner, but also God is incredible and everything is like cotton candy and unicorns. Yeah. Um, I was really sick of being patronized and I was really sick of turning to church leadership that I felt like wasn't being honest with me about what was actually going on because they were trying to keep me in the church. Yeah. And, and persuade you oftentimes about different ideas. And, right. and that's where I think two comments before you start reading some of these sections. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one is uh, that you, I don't remember the origin of this statement that I heard, but it but it impacted me. And since I can't remember the origin, I'm just going to say it was me then that made, <laughs> made it Yeah, up. because that's not academically <laughs> or ethically problematic at all. Uh, yeah. I'm sure. Academic virtues are, are sincerely I'm at risk. taking an ethics class right now. I should know this. Exactly. But. So one statement is that you can't argue people into kingdom life and you can't argue people out of kingdom life. And I think that's so you helpful. You tried to credit that, co- that quote to me yeah. earlier. Was and I was like, you? no, I'm not smart that's enough not for that, but I so, appreciate it. Yeah. And the book Unapologetic is really taking it because apologetics yeah. is the study of defending the faith with true and statements and propositions. And so to be yeah, unapologetic is good. Yeah. So you can't argue people into the kingdom and you can't argue them out, number one. But number two, I think the God of the Bible is they're filled with emotion. Like for some oh, reason, yeah. we've lived in this weird enlightenment, <laughs> rationalistic era that assumes logic and, and critical thinking is inherently reliable and emotions are inherently unreliable. And that's just, I mean, we don't even have time in this podcast to get into how dumb that whole idea oh, is. Absolutely. Uh, logic is this filled with fallacies all the time and, and, and it assumes all kinds of things. It has to assume things as a starting point and those assumptions are often way out of bounds. But even more importantly, to strip emotion out of the biblical text the, is ridiculous. The very heart of the gospel First. was moved not by logic. God didn't get moved by theology. He he was moved by emotion to rescue his beloved. And uh, and so to live, it, we can our emotions can go really wonky, of course. Totally. But to live a full throated life means to live a full throated emotional life as well. And so to think about God's kingdom in light of relationship and emotions first. Yeah, And then theology second, uh, I think is a really just an interesting move that this book makes. And it was super helpful to you. Yeah, totally. And so part of what I love about this book is that, yeah, it's absolutely not patronizing at all. It's super honest. And okay, I, I want to preface this book for anybody who might be interested in it. I would encourage you to go out and buy it and read it. However, the author is British and with the British vocabulary that does not necessarily have the same fear of <laughs> swear words that we have here in America. Um, and for any of my friends who have seen me both in America and in Scotland, when I get your ling- my accent your, and my... Your linguistic choices are My vocabulary yes. changes a lot. Um, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, and there's just something so much more satisfying about swearing in a British accent than well, it is about swearing in an American accent. It doesn't sound as like crass. It doesn't. I Yeah. <laughs> so that comes to mind. I, I was playing um, Mirfield Golf Course one time in, the, in mm-hmm. maybe about 2007 or so. And my partner, who is a Scottish gentleman, yep. he we play alternate shot over there. And he was on the tee box on like the fourth or fifth hole. 
And he just hit a ground ball uh, to, to the right side into the weeds. Yep. And this might be one of the only times that I ever swear on the <gasps> Are podcast. You swear on I the might, podcast? Oh I might, gosh, but it's in the, so it's, but it's in the pure British style. So there's oh, something so about excited. even the F bomb that didn't, it wasn't as off putting when yeah. he said it because it's spelled actually F O O K over there. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so this, this distinguished gentleman at Mirfield golf course, who again was my partner, hit his ground ball into the weeds and he goes, Oh, for sake <laughs> just, to this it's like day, the robin williams just, bit about making up a new sport it in golf. Is, it's yeah. like uh, that it just made me cry so yeah. it also there's one other story that came to mind um as you were talking about this it's and this my brother's story this is your brother it's such a good story he was not because we rode the public transportation system all the time and we still do when we're in scotland and so let's just say that when we moved there and you were two and then three years old uh and then through four five six seven you know we were there for a long time but but we spent a lot of time there and when you were two is when we first moved there. And Caleb was four, just turning five. Yeah, we were young. So he, he definitely was familiar with many of these words. And he, after a day at nursery, walked into our front door of our flat. And they have those cast iron radiators yep. on the wall that allegedly heat the place. I don't know oh, how no, they, they don't. They, I, <laughs> they're, they're, they're literally like you're standing in Hades when you're next to them. But if you're oh, five yeah. feet away from them, you're freezing. You're in the Antarctic. So you are. So with this cast iron radiator on the wall, uh, he walked in as this four, maybe five-year-old and just crushed his elbow on <laughs> on the yep. cast iron radiator. And your mom was in the kitchen. I wish I would have been there for this because oh. your mom was in the kitchen. I wish I was old enough to remember this. Yes. And he walked by and he goes, oh, and he goes, oh, mom, my arm's all effed up. <laughs> <laughs> and Hallie, well, we hadn't been living there for that long uh, no, at that point, she had we? just cried and almost fell on the floor laughing and yep. stuff. And so yep. uh, maybe the last part of that story is is because we walked everywhere too, if we weren't riding buses, mm-hmm. I would often pass the time walking with you by playing rhyming games with you. Uh, because I remember yes, this because one. because your mom said you know Caleb that was perfectly appropriate basically but we just we can't use that word here in just in our normal choices right right so as I was walking into the city with you one day not too long later I was playing the rhyming game with Caleb so we the the game would go that I would say a word and then he had to rhyme it and then I would rhyme it and then as soon as somebody couldn't think of a rhyme you lost mm-hmm. so you start with toy and then boy and and ahoy or whatever and you just keep mm-hmm. going forward. So I started with duck and, and then it was Which luck. really as a father is like your first mistake. I really was. Because you it, really should have known where that I one was should've. going. And I, it was like duck and then luck. And then I said truck. And then he had this long pause. <laughs> and he goes, I don't think I can say that one. <laughs> it was so great. So I was like, you're right, buddy. Well done. You're right. Good well done. Then. So this book does have a lot of really bad language in it. Yeah, um, it does. But it's also, I think, really worth reading from from what the author, just the, the, the premise of the book is super helpful. And we talk about maybe just a different pathway into thinking about God as this actual being with whom we have a relationship and, and elicits and evokes all kinds of emotions in our life too. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the first thing that I really love about this book is he kind of opens with the idea of like, why do we believe what we believe when, and, and really he spends the first six pages talking about how ridiculous it is that we believe what we believe. And mm-hmm. he kind of compares, where is it? Oh, it's so funny. Yeah, we commit the bizarre category error of claiming that our goblins, ghouls, flying spaghetti monsters are really there, off the page and away from the rendering programs of the CGI studio. We actually get down and worship. We get down on our actual knees, bowing and scraping in front of the empty space where we insist our spaghetti monster can be found. (laughs) Right? 
So he talks about why this book is based on emotion rather than logic, Mm -hmm. because really believing in God is not like a a logical thing by modern science and philosophy. Absolutely. Makes no sense. No, no, no. And and I often tell students that in in the inevitable doubts that anybody will have about Mm -hmm. whether this whole God thing is actually real that the resolution to that doubt is not greater understanding, though it's yeah. fine. I mean, I, we have to pursue understanding theology. All of those things matter. But biblically speaking, anyway, um, the resolution to to doubt is always trust. And then even as your doubt per- persists, there is uh, something that comes alongside of it that, that begins to grow. So again, one other quick thing on that. I love the story when Jesus appears to... 500 people on the hillside. I think it's at the end of the book of Matthew and it's after yeah. he's been risen from the dead. Uh, and and the account of the book of Matthew says that every uh, everybody worshiped, but some doubted. I just thought, <laughs> what? what? How is that even possible? You saw the guy crucified. Saw he's him up die. on the hillside. Now he's standing in front and of you're you. St- yeah, anyway. So You're like, I, no, no, no. It's just Peter in a wig. Right. <laughs> like, right, right. Like, what was the, yeah. Anyway. Anyway, doubt is part of the deal. Wigs? Mm, don't know. Biblical times? I, do, I don't know. Rome. Probably. Yeah, Rome would have, but I don't I mean... Rome would have. At least all the different versions of Kirk Cameron stories of... <laughs> of <the laughs> Which are wholly accurate. <laughs> I don't remember any wigs. Anyways, okay, anyway. Moving on. Yes. Um yeah, so he goes on to talk about the Atheist Bus in London, which is apparently something that's super famous that I didn't know anything about. But right. apparently it's like a big UK thing, right? right? Or at least it was in like UK churches. Yeah, and you're gonna read an excerpt about this right now from the yeah, book? Okay. Yep. Yeah, go for it. Um and this is slightly censored, um, just a little bit. <laughs> yes. But, uh, yeah, he says, take the famous slogan on the atheist bus in London. I know that's an utterance by the hardcore hobbyists of unbelief, the people who care enough to be in a state of negative excitement about religion. But in this particular case, they're pretty much stating the ordinary wisdom of everyday disbelief rather than, for example, rabbiting on about orbital teapots, because he had a side rant earlier he about did, okay. some kind of ridiculous theology. So he's about to, ready to reference the slogan that's on this the bus. bus of London? Yep. Uh, okay. Um, so, because you know how they have, like, ads on yeah, the double-decker sure buses? Don't. So this was an ad that was on the bus, but it was, like, for new atheism. Oh, okay. And in opposition to Christianity, right? I wonder where new atheists get their money, that they can have ads. I don't know, man. Don't From the ads? <laughs> well, but then you have to have money to buy. I don't know. Okay, don't that's know. a different different That's question. I just we should don't, do research. I don't that. even know how I would give to new atheism if I could find it, but I, I wouldn't. Yeah. But I'm just curious how people do. Okay. Anyway, so the, so the slogan. Yeah. On the anyways, bus. Um, the atheist bus says, "There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life." There's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your and life. enjoy your life. So he says, which word here is the questionable one, the aggressive one, the one that parts company with actual recognizable human experience so fast it doesn't even have time to wave goodbye? That's so good because, yeah, I mean, when you actually start analyzing, it's like, wait, what is human experience actually? Anyway, keep going. Well, and he says, it isn't probably. New atheists aren't claiming anything outrageous when they say there probably isn't a God. In fact, they aren't claiming anything substantial at all because really, how would they know? It's as much of a guess for them as it is for me. I which love one that. of the first steps in like having honest Christianity is being willing to admit that first of all, your theology might be flawed. Right. Second it, of all, oh, you can't know that there's a God. You can't know. There's no it, like if you could know a hundred percent intellectually and logically and prove that there was a God, what would be the point? Well, 
See, and and what I appreciate is either way is just it, it's going to be a leap of faith on either side of it, and that's yeah. what I appreciate about that statement is that, like you said, that faith is the heart of any view of life. You, Absolutely, you, faith is just dealing with the unknown and how you're going to choose to organize your life in light of the unknown that we all face, because every single one of us faces the unknown, and so mm-hmm. faith is just Absolutely. how you organize your life in the midst of the unknown. And atheism is as much of a leap of faith. Somehow it gets positioned as more reliable or more wise right. or more no, more I, logical, more scientific. Yeah, no, fine. I mean, fine. But it, it you can deconstruct atheism as fast as you can deconstruct anything else. Absolutely. And all of it is a leap of faith. Every last bit of it is. Yeah. And so what he says is he's like the the word probably here isn't in there probably isn't a God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. That's not the probably is not the problem right. in this sentence. Right? He says the word that offends against realism here is enjoy enjoy your life. And he goes on and he talks about enjoyment is only one emotion and talks a little bit about how enjoyment being the primary pursuit of life is kind of the idea of like materialism. Mm. Um, But he says life isn't unanimous like that. To say life is to be enjoyed and just enjoyed is like saying that mountains should only have summits or all colors should be purple or that all plays should be by Shakespeare. It is a bizarre category error but not necessarily an innocent one, not necessarily a, p- a piece of fluff pretending that it does no harm. The implication of the bus slogan is that enjoyment would be your natural state if you weren't being worried by us believers and our hellfire preaching. <laughs> Which is fantastic. It is, and neither one of you, I mean, as we start talking about who God is, we we will also both resist all of that baloney of the hellfire preaching. Absolutely. Right? But, but at the same time, I love that statement. So basically what he's saying is that there is this impulse that says, if we can just do away with God, Mm -hmm. then we can go about and sort of just be hedonists at the end of the day. We can just go pursue pleasure and enjoyment as the highest good all the time. And actually, if you do manage to reject God, then you should be be able to expect that you will now enjoy your life free from the shackles of all of this baloney. And yet that doesn't really seem to describe what most people's experience is. Anyway, I think he writes a little bit more about this, right? Yeah, yeah you've he, read more than me. He gives a couple of examples about this um, where, and, and I'll skip over this because it's it's long, but he talks about a couple of different examples of the sort of life that you might be in where it would be ridiculous to inform you that if you don't believe in God, you would be enjoying your life. Yeah, And yeah. it's um, the the people in a relationship where, uh, deteriorating health is part of a deteriorating mental health and suddenly your partner doesn't recognize you anymore. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, yeah, I know just of that story right now. Right, or the yeah. or the people whose physical health is deteriorating and so their minds trapped in their bodies and, and they can't reach out to the world around them and the world can't get to them. I know that story as well. I mean, uh-huh. and, and maybe a, a podcast for a different time, but I went in... When I was 34, and you know the story is when I was di- diagnosed with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, and it turned out to yeah. be a, a false diagnosis, but I lived in it for long enough to know that the outcome towards the end of your life in that diagnosis is that you do have a mind that is sharp, but you can no longer communicate, move, or breathe, or whatever. And it's just the, the, the horrors of that, even brushing up against the periphery of it was one thing, but people are yeah. living that. People are living that. And you're, you're going to tell day. them, a bus slogan that says, if you just do away with God, your life will be enjoyable. I, like, Absolutely. These are just, anyway, I know he's got to keep going. There's more circumstances, but my yeah. gosh, we know a lot of people listening to this podcast right now in their stories, they're facing devastating circumstances or in the midst Absolutely. of great tragedy. 
And and the the last example that he gives is the one of the young woman who has become addicted to drugs and and is willing to do whatever it takes to get money yep. to, to yep. get that next hit. And so so what he says is he's when the atheist bus comes by and tells you there's probably no God, so you should stop worrying and enjoy your life. The slogan is not just bitterly inappropriate in mood. What it means, if it's true, is that anyone who isn't enjoying themselves is entirely on their own. The three of you are, for instance, you're all three locked in your unshareable situations, banged up for good in cells no other human being can enter. What the atheist bus says is there's no help coming. Hmm. Don't get me wrong. I don't think there's any help coming in one large and important sense of the term. I don't believe anything is going to happen which will materially alter the position the three people find themselves in. But let's be clear about the emotional logic of the bus's message. It amounts to a denial of hope or consolation on any but the most chirpy, squeaky, bubblegummy reading of the human situation. St. Augustine called this kind of thing cruel optimism 1,500 years ago, and it's still cruel. Hmm. Boy, that idea about help coming... Yeah, um, I think is I think this is one of those places where people that have been in churches or Christians, specifically in Western, and I even think specifically in American culture, mm-hmm. I think some people have been sold a bill of goods about what version of help they can expect to come. Yeah, even, we're God's it, vending machine. Yeah, it really, and it, and it's. I mean, you have these these sort of shiny teethed perfect haired pastors filling up stadiums with what's called a health and wealth gospel or a prosperity gospel that if yep. you just pray the right prayer, have just the right amount of faith and, and do all of the right things and that you're functionally pressing a, a on the vending machine <laughs> and, and God can be expected to dispense X and, and uh, whatever those outcomes are like the help that we expect in the difficulty of our life should look like I get the job or I'm cured of the illness or my yeah. relationship has been mended or my kids return or the dog didn't die or whatever it is. We think that that's the kind of help that God should bring in, in an American prosperity culture where we've made God kind of into that vending machine. And gosh, it just brings to mind a story. I was thinking about it earlier today uh, and now thinking about it again, that there is a couple that I knew that your mom and I knew maybe 20 years ago that started going to sort of this health and wealth kind of style yeah. thing, like the help that they expected. And and the mom got cancer along the way. And the, the church's counsel of her at that time was, and of the whole family, is never say the word cancer, don't give cancer a foothold, never even acknowledge its presence, just pray and trust that God will heal because you don't want to engage with the cancer. You just have to trust God. And, and if you do, then healing will come. And there was, I think at that time, a first and a fourth grader. So roughly a six or seven year old and roughly a a 10 or 11 year old in the house. And they went by that teaching, believing this health and wealth kind of baloney. And uh, and, and the mom died and we knew them and we knew them, um, you know, I think they volunteered for us in, in one of the churches that we were in. And then the subtle, and that's they volunteered for us before they went to this other church. And, um, there was this subtle sort of blame then that was put upon the kids and the surviving husband that maybe they didn't have enough faith or she didn't have enough faith because yeah. if she would have, God would have healed her. And because well, the, and then the, the uh, family and the mom and the kids and the whatever, they don't get to process that grief. They don't get to, I mean, right. enjoy the time that they have left together. They don't right. like, they don't ever face the reality of that. And then when it slips away from them, it's gone and it's their fault. That and, and there, is horrible. And there could have been help that they could have found in the midst of it that may not have altered the diagnosis, but it would have been a help of a kind that would have been a genuine help. 
Yeah. Um, because whether, it, even if she had, it's part of the great fallacy of that is even if she had been healed in that moment, someday she wouldn't have been. And someday none, you know, someday all of us are going to be walking through those waters of, mm-hmm. of death. And so if, if God's faithfulness is evidenced in the fact that our circumstances and our outcomes are what we want them to be, then we're already in trouble because at some point then God is going to fail us because nobody wants to yeah. die right at the end of the day and uh, yeah, and so yep. w- when you die then that means that god was unfaithful as opposed to maybe there was a different kind of help is the point so not only do the atheists are they selling a bill of goods with this billboard on a bus saying that if you can just cut god out of the equation you'll be great you'll yeah. have an enjoyable life but the other bill of goods is the church saying but if you bring god into the equation you'll have an enjoyable life and both sides i think maybe Absolutely. have missed some really important stuff yeah yeah and and part of what i think is really interesting about this is that one thing that I have heard a lot growing up in the church is the idea that if that health and wealth gospel doesn't come through, right, it's because of sin. It's because you are a messed up human right. being. You're depraved. You're awful. God hates you. You're going to hell. For sure. Uh, and that's why he didn't help you is because you're a terrible human being. Yep. Um, stay, stay clean from porn for a month and then God will finally say, well, right. I think I can kind of I kind of move your direction. Well, for a young woman, it's not even assumed that we'll know what porn is because um, we are not supposed to know anything no, about no, no. sexuality You're supposed ever. to dress modestly, don't and, you know that? Oh, we are supposed to dress in sackcloth and ashes <laughs> um, because if <laughs> we have... That's for morning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's the same thing here. Um because if we have shoulders, <laughs> that means such, we're going to hell. Such a good so, biblical reference. Thank you. Okay, yeah, I felt that was really, really good dumb. about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and and this one is, uh, this section will probably be more highly censored because every time that I say mess up or screw up, he's using stronger language. He's using here. much stronger language, right? Unless I can say that because I'm quoting. So technically, it's not me. You could, but we do have actually a surprising number of, of young people, young ears yeah, listening to this true. podcast, too. And so. You already swore twice, though. Uh, but I did it in a Scottish fashion and then I only just referenced it. He's from there. British. Yeah, but, at, but at some point, maybe we just have to get like, the, we have to see if Nat, the producer, can just bleep things out. Mm. So, but But maybe for now, but like pink style where yeah. you still know exactly what she said. Yes, that's for sure. Yeah. We need the radio version. The of this radio is what we need right now. Okay, so give us the radio version of, okay. of unapologetic. Yeah, so he's talking about the concept of sin and kind of what we have grown to associate sin with in the church. Um, and this little phrase just makes me giggle every time. Um, but he says, what I and most other believers understand by the word I'm not saying to you, which is sin, um, has got very little to do with yummy transgressions, which is such a great way <laughs> really of putting true. that. Um, but he says, for us, it refers to something much more like the human tendency or the human propensity to mess up. Or let's add one more word, the human propensity to mess things up. Because what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive roles as agents of entropy. It is our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here, including moods, promises, Hmm. relationships we care about, our own well-being and other people's, as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch. Hmm. Now I hope we're on common ground. In the end, almost everyone recognizes this as one of the truths about themselves. You can get quite a long way through an adult life without having to acknowledge your own personal propensity— Maybe even all the way through if you're someone with a very high threshold of obliviousness. Um, <laughs> or just just flat denial. Right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, but for most of us, the point eventually arrives when, at least for an hour or a day or a season, 
we find we have to take notice of our human propensity to mess things up. Hmm. Um, hmm. And so this whole second chapter is about that. How does that, that feel invitational like. somehow? Like we're it talking about does. sin because right now. Do you know and, what and it is? What? Is it's not you. Hmm. That's it's not you as a person are messed up. And yet I it's find you myself as in a that. human being yeah. have a tendency to mess things up. Yeah, I it because yeah, I find myself sympathetic and also within that story as you're reading that. And I know it's one little section from a really important chapter in the book, but it it sounds weird to say sin is invitational because that's not what I mean by that. What it means is that felt yeah. invitational to be actually real with myself about mm-hmm. the idea that again to censor it but to, but to screw things up in this world and 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 that somewhere through all the f bombs that he drops in that page and a half that somehow it feels kinder it it does it it doesn't compromise the idea that that we mess up or that we live in a messed up yeah. world but somehow in all of that i feel like maybe i could write down and it wouldn't take me long to write down, you know, 27 ways in, in which I have quote unquote screwed up in life. I thought and you I, were going to say that it wouldn't take you long to list all of your sins. And I was like, uh, yeah, well, oh, no, it, it would take me a long time to list all your sins. I just mean, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, believe me, that is an activity I'm not, that could go on for I'm days. I'm not talking about length of pages. I'm talking about how easily 27 <laughs> would okay, come to mind okay, okay. among the length now. of pages. I was so ready. I was like, just finish your sentence. Are you back Here in your go. bitter phase right now? You, you're you kind of you yeah. did you, you brought, oh. yep sure am <laughs> that was, but I, I think that's such a good starting point is for both you and I who who believe in in this God part of it is just being ruthlessly honest with yourself about Absolutely what you bring to the table and clearly we are also deeply impacted by what other people bring to the table that has really screwed things up and so we are both the deeply wounded and the deeply wounders I think yeah. at the same time and Absolutely. and I think that's the kind of world and relationship in which we find ourselves. And I think a lot of people want to just kind of poo-poo that away and don't know how to, I'll say it this way. I think a lot of people don't know how to deal with that and especially don't know what kind of help God offers in the midst of the fact that we've been deeply wounded and we are wounders at the same time because they think of this God as this crazy 18th century revivalist (laughs) God that is high as fire and brimstone. And we'll take that. We'll take issue with that a little later. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and part of what I love about this, and I hadn't realized it until you and I were talking about this section earlier, but he's kind of talking about the in the section that I'm just about to read. Um, he kind of is referencing Matthew 20-something, 30-something through 30-something. Um, I, I, pray, I feel oh, like there's a 33 in there, but the one about okay, there's no love 30, the Lord your God. There's no 33rd chapter to Matthew. No, <laughs> the verse, verse There's nothing better there than somewhere. watching you try to Shut figure up. out a Bible reference. I know it's Matthew. When we start live streaming this podcast. I know it's in I chapter just... 20-something of Matthew. <laughs> so that narrowed down a lot of it. But it's the love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, yes. and mind. Indeed. Or might. Mind. Depending on what both. translation. Yeah, it's both. You're right. It's um, both. Well, I I know people who would very strongly argue that it's not mind, it's might. Yeah, I know. Um, but, but whatever. Those um, Greek and then love your neighbor as yourself, right? Right. That that verse, um, or verses, I'm not sure, but um, <laughs> that's a little bit what he's referencing here without referencing it explicitly. But what he says is, he says, "What do we do with the knowledge that we've messed up, that we no longer make sense to ourselves? Turn to face each other for a start." A community of acknowledged screw-ups ought to at least in theory be kinder to one another. Hmm. And there are things we can use our imperfection for once we admit it. 
And he, he talks about that a little bit. Read that bit. one more time just quickly about a community of what? Because I think... Can I say can I say what he actually says? Because I feel like it, it's just much better in this context. Okay, so for any young ears that are listening right now... The next 15 seconds are not for your ears. Yes, and maybe not can bleep it out, but it's so worth it. But here, yeah. here's like, I just think... Think about all the church communities that we've been in where the pressure is there to look right and act right. I mean, there is nothing worse than how often people fight on the way driving to church and then you get greeted. <laughs> or on by the way the, home. Yeah. And yeah. you get greeted by the smiley face greeter and you sort of have to bracket aside all of your life to look good. Mm-hmm for the next hour and a half-ish or so. One of the kids is still sniffling because, you know, they're still crying a little bit, but we're at church now. That's exactly so right. So you have to pretend that we weren't fighting. Oh, I just... And I did that as a parent. When you guys... If you guys started getting noisy in church, mm-hmm. especially as a public pastor oh, yeah. in churches, like, you you know, with the people, you were in the fishbowl, so your behavior had to be really good, and I would lose I all... I hope you know there's like a, an international alliance of former pastors' I'm kids sure that there where is. we're all like, religious trauma, woo! <laughs> right, yeah. But I'm sure... Like, we can all identify each other. It's like we all have like sonar or something and yes. you like walk into a room and you're like, oh, you were a pastor's kid. Yep. Well, yep. those parents that get upset in the restaurant when their kids are acting up, like overly upset. Oh, yeah. When it's more about their reputation than it is about dealing with the kids. That was me. I mean, yeah. I was not the healthiest pastor all the time. I, it was, I think later in life, I learned to deal with some of that stuff a little bit better. But early on, there's this weird conflation of pastoral reputation with wanting to minister to people and mostly my pastoral yeah. reputation or worry about that one the day and and you have to be perfect to minister to the you people. for sure do my, and so this description that you're about to read actually yeah. without being able without it would take us another two hours in this podcast to actually mine in to the people who are following jesus in that first century and the people oh, who are at gosh, his table yes. and who was all there and when you actually read scripture, it's not about the cleaned up and the looking good. It's exactly not what you're about all. to read. They're messy and they fight. And they anybody who has watched The Chosen, yes. that scene when he has just finished healing people all day long, it's Jesus, stunning. and he's it's exhausted a stunning scene. and he can yeah. hardly walk. And they've been sitting around that stupid bonfire fighting with each other for hours. And he just stumbles in and like thanks them all for being there and then goes to bed. Yes. And I, they're all like, what? have we been doing this whole time? Yeah, it really, that's the one Christian media thing that I think the is Chosen, worth watching. And it's, it's unbelievable. It's so good. And, and Kirk Cameron's not in it, so that's super helpful. <laughs> so it's great. Yeah, so it's yeah. much better. He didn't get left behind or anything. No, no, no. So it's all good. Okay, so anyway, so that was a lot longer than 15 seconds. Now, for sure, the next 15 seconds, if you're young ears, yes, don't listen, 15 seconds. don't listen to this part. Sorry. A community of acknowledged ups ought to at least in theory be kinder to one another. No, I just, oh, Which boy. is such a, beautiful idea. But but the thing that I love about it is that then he goes on and he says, but there's a limit to what we can do for each other, a limit to how much of each other's stuff we can ever manage to bear, Oof. even just to bear to hear about. While it often feels as if there's no limit to how far or how long the ripples of our multitudinous groups can keep traveling or how intricately they can go on colliding and encroaching and causing collateral damage in other lives. Oh my gosh. Can you, th- I mean, uh I just, I don't think there's a single person alive that if they're willing to go there, you know, like just bracket off the obliviousness that you referenced or the victory through denial in which we often live, that as you begin to sort of scribe out the 27 screw ups uh, that you begin with among the pages of screw ups that we've done, that if you're willing to be really honest, that last part about how your screw ups have probably rippled into the world and around, it it actually becomes a little bit breathtaking. and. 
if that's the reality of our lives, which which I, it is actually the reality of our lives, it it, it's the reality of everybody's life. If again, if we're being honest with ourselves, and then you greet that reality with an unbiblical God of fire and brimstone in terms of how that God is perceived, you're just going to go into hiding, aren't you? I mean, if if yeah. your screw up is met with a very heavy rock from heaven. I don't know. Is that what brimstone <laughs> a is? A lightning I'm not strike. Even, I'm not even sure brimstone? what brimstone is. Is that just rock? I think rock? it's a rock. Okay. Well, it has stone in the name. <laughs> so it stands to reason. But honestly, English is just the most ridiculous language, yeah, so which why, I can why say don't you is look an up, English Yeah, major. look up brimstone if you what that is. Please do. Um, but yeah. But if that's what you agree, if that is, why would you follow that God? Why would you be interested in being a part of a community of people if when you decide to actually hazard the vulnerability or the intimacy to acknowledge the the zoo that that we all are, and if you're greeted oh, with the god with brimstone, it's sulfur. sulfur, so it burns you up. Weird. So well, fire, yeah, that's why it's fire and brimstone because it's more commonly known as burning stone. Oh my gosh! But it's so this gets it's worse. Sulfur. Interesting, and and there is moments in the biblical text where God does act in these in, in incredibly sort of volatile kinds of ways, and again, that would be for a whole nother podcast to try to understand why that is. And what is happening in those moments, uh, just maybe as a quick aside, it's always with yeah. grief and disappointment. It's, it's there. Yeah. So it's as opposed to this ever raging God, that <laughs> that is not how God is. That's not the kind of help we're talking about here. There's a very yeah. different kind of help that is the consistent witness of scripture that the only time we ever really see God act in that way is in grief and disappointment when he has to take somebody out because that person continues or that people group continues to perpetrate great wounding and harm on all yeah. the rest of the images in this world. And even then God an would wish that it would be different. An active and intentional threat to the right. kingdom. A, a raising of the fist against God that is yeah. destroying other imagers. And, and, and after even them at the end of a very long process, God wishing it would be different, uh, will move in grief and disappointment in those ways that seem so horrifying to us, but we would just need a longer podcast to understand what's going on in Absolutely. some of those things. So it's not this raging bloodthirsty God that, that people sometimes associate with yeah. the God of the Bible. So anyway. Totally. So, so we're all a bunch of acknowledged... We've had the love your neighbor um, bit. Yes, uh, screw-ups, yep. yes. Yeah, and so he says, we have to attend to justice as well as mercy, and we're finite creatures with limited powers to make good what's been broken. With the best will in the world, we can't always take the weight off of other people's bad stuff. Hmm. We can't often lean in and lift it off them. The crack in everything is here to stay. And And this is the part that the first time that I read this book, I was enjoying it and I was interested in it, and it was this section that I remember I was sitting in my bed in Scotland and I just started weeping. Hmm. And I was like, oh, he knows. He gets it. This hmm. is real. And that was when I started trusting what this book was saying. Okay. So one thing we do instead when we've messed up, when we no longer make sense to ourselves, is to turn toward the space where the possibility exists that there might be someone to hear us who is not one of the parties to our endless million-sided, multi-generational suit against one another, to turn toward a space in which there is quite possibly no one, in which, we think as we find ourselves doing it, there probably is no one. And we say, hello? I don't think I can stand this anymore. I don't think I can bear it. Not another night like last night. Not another morning like this morning. Hello? A little help in here, please? And then he opens Whoa, the first line Just of the next chapter. So stunning. Says, and nothing happens. Almost always, nothing happens. Nothing at all. And he goes on, he says, no answering voice speaks up in the echo chamber of your skull. The morning you couldn't face comes anyway. Night falls and the darkness of your guilt, 
or your sorrow or your bereavement comes around again. And, and he goes on and he talks about this and he says, we've arrived at God or at God's absence. Hmm. And he goes through and he talks about what it is to pray to a God that sometimes you don't hear anything back. I would dare I say most often. Most often. Mm-hmm. But later in this chapter, which we can talk about this in just a minute, he talks about what it feels like when you do encounter God. Yeah. And what it is to be so deeply known. And, and you read this next section, and I know it's probably the last section of this particular podcast episode, yeah. and it'll set some foundation for some future things. Um, but when you read it to me earlier today, that's the first that I had heard it. And it, it, it is among, for me anyway, anytime we're using language to describe the filling of the space of, of the infinite, and, and even that language is falls short. It really, it, all language falls short of that kind of reality when, when the fully other greets you in that space. And, and it, there is something really beautifully important about living with other people in the acknowledgement of our own sorrow and pain. Somehow we bear our own, each other's burdens in that. And, yeah. and, and there's a kingdom math that I don't fully understand that if I'm sharing your <laughs> burden and you're sharing my burden, somehow we don't get each 50% of it. We get like 10% of it. I don't, I don't understand yeah. how that exactly works when you start living in transparent community with other people where you're willing to share these really scary uh, screw ups, mm-hmm. <laughs> quote unquote, that we've yep. done. And that, and, and there are very scary woundings that we've had too, but it does get to a point where, the community can only bear so much like what he was yeah. writing about. And you turn towards this space and begin to say hello, which is just a really staggering, when sacred he goes, I thing. I can't take it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And how often you're greeted with absence, but but for reasons that I don't fully understand or explain uh, or can't explain, there there is a sense of presence that I don't think you can... I, I know people have really tried to find biological origin, psychological origin for these mm-hmm. things. And, and, and maybe, but they all fall really short of that. Absolutely. And, and when God draws near, it's a, it's a different thing. And I know you've had some of that. I know I've had some of that. I know people that, yeah. that truly actually enter into this faith thing. That's often where their starting point is. They were never argued into it. Yeah. They, they began to live a different kind of, of journey. Yeah. And, and really quick about the absence or the silence of God as well. I would really recommend the song, The Silence of God by Andrew Peterson. That's yeah, a great song. It's stunningly beautiful, and he just talks about how hard it can be to exist in that space of not hearing anything, but knowing in your whole heart that you believe it to be true. Mm-hmm. Anyways. <laughs> no, it's and, yeah. and but to even say that hello requires a trust that God is actually for you. Absolutely. And that there is something called Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that in my, in, in, in I, when I, I, that song, though it is such a popular Christian and cliche Elma song, it, when, when Amazing Grace actually greets me yeah. in my, in my screw up sort of thing, it suddenly is not a song anymore. It, it, it breaks me and drives me to tears mm-hmm. um, in, in that. And I think, but just before you read what you're about Absolutely, to read, yeah. I, I know in my twenties when I was so lost and so lonely and, and feeling like such a massive screw up. Uh, at that time, it was Brennan Manning uh, was, a, was a person in the 1990s or so that was writing so eloquently about God's foreness of us. Is that the right mm-hmm. way to say it? Foreness? He was, he was for us. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and and the, he just has a phrase in his book, Abba's Child, that talks about, you know, you're playing this game of chameleon all the time and pretend and putting on masks and just trying to get by and, and living in the, in the words of Thoreau, a, a life of quiet desperation. Mm-hmm. And you just get to the end of the day and you're, and you're so tired. 
and hopefully you managed enough of your screwing up and, and hopefully you deflected enough of the wounding that came your way and then you got to get up and do it all over again. And I don't remember the exact phrase, but he talked about um, you can do that for a very long time, but, but when the night is cold and your nerves are shattered and infinity speaks the depth of its love for you, those words, I can barely say them to this day some, some yeah. 25 years later, because when infinity speaks the depth of its love for you, um, it changes the equation entirely. And I remember that. I remember 10 years of being an absolute fraud uh, and even a pastoral fraud in so many ways. Um, I remember when the, when the nerves were shattered and the night was cold. And, and I went, I didn't have the language of hello, like what you're reading right now, but that was where I went with it. And, and in those moments, something just shifted entirely. The, that moment of just being like, hello, is there somebody out there? Somebody help me, like, please. When I read this book, I had been in some of those places. And part of what was so powerful for me about reading this book was that I was being met with theology, with intellectual rationalization of what I was experiencing. And this was the first time that I had heard somebody express what I was feeling without trying to rationalize it. So good. It's it's why what we said earlier is so important that when Absolutely. you try to strip experience and emotion out of this faith journey and try to apologetic people into stuff, you you might be almost coerced into it, but you end up in a hollowed out journey. When, when the whole witness of, of the Bible is a God who, again, is wildly passionate and emotional and and moves from those places. And so um, it's really interesting how you said that, that to have been greeted typically with theology to explain your experience versus something, something different. Yeah, absolutely. And so then he, he talks about when he does pray and he does experience or encounter God. um, And this was kind of the follow-up moment where I was like, oh, so not only does he understand what I have been going through, he also like fundamentally gets what's going on here. Yeah. But he says, and now I've forgotten to breathe because the shining something an infinitesimal distance away out of the universe is breathing in me and through me. And though the experience is grand beyond my powers to convey, it's not impersonal. Someone, not something, is here. Though it's on a scale that defeats imagining and exists without location or exists in all locations at once, I feel what I feel when there's someone beside me. I am being looked at. I am being known, known in some holy and accurate and complete way that is only possible when the point of view is not another local self in the world, but glows in the whole medium in which I live and move. I am being seen from inside, but without any of my own illusions. I am being seen from behind, beneath, beyond. I am being read by what I am made of. On one level, I can feel this is absolutely safe. A parent's hold is nothing compared to this. I'm being carried on the universe's shoulder. But on another level, it's terrifying. Being screened off by my separateness is all I know in my dealings with somebody's who look at me. This is utterly exposed. And while it may be safe, it is not kind in one of the primary ways in which human beings set out about being kind to one another. It takes no account at all of my illusions about myself. It lays me out, roofless, wallless, worse than naked, It knows where my kindness comes checkered with secret cruelties or mockeries. It knows where my love comes with reservations. It knows where I hate and fear and despise. It knows what I indulge in. It knows what parasitic colonies of habit I have allowed to form in me. It knows the best of me, which may well be not what I am proud of, 
and the worst of me, which is not what it has occurred to me to be ashamed of. It knows what I have forgotten. It knows all of this, and it shines at me. In fact, it never stops shining. It is continuous, this attention it pays. I cannot make it turn away, but I can turn away from it easily. All I have to do is stop listening to the gentle, unendingly patient call it stitches through the fabric of everything there is. It compels nothing, so all I have to do is stop paying attention. And I do, after not very long. I can't bear, for very long at once, to be seen like that. To be seen like that is judgment in itself. Hmm. And and he goes on and he keeps talking about it. But a different kind of judgment than... Yeah, because he says only to be seen like that is forgiveness too, or at any rate, the essential beginning of forgiveness. And when I come back from the place where the metaphors end and the light behind light shines, and I open my eyes in the quiet church, for a little while everything I see glows as if it were lamplit from inside, and every flowing particle of the whole gleams in its separate grains, gleams as if it were treasured. Hmm. Boy, I think... I mean, the many things that are, they're stunning. Cause I've, I, you didn't read that whole thing before you read uh, a part of that. So mm-hmm. it's sort of just part of me was thinking, uh, for a little while about the, the movie Avatar, not Avatar Airbender, but the movie. Which Av- is such a good show. <laughs> we, we definitely <laughs> if you have haven't watched the- Avatar, the last Airbender, <laughs> go watch it now. But the, but the blue people movie Avatar and, um, there's this a profound understanding that I think was inherent in that movie when the the two avatars um, enter into sexual union with one another. Well, the avatar and then the Navi woman who yeah, was yeah. his guide, uh, they enter into sexual union as part of the covenant. And and how uh, it was part of the Navi people anyway. But one of their languages was "I see you." Yeah. And and after this beautiful intimate covenant moment between the two of them, where they're now in this union. That they they have a a breakup of sorts and a break apart or whatever, but when they come back together later, the language of "I see you," and and there's just sort of this "I see you" knowing kind of thing that is not a theological or intellectual knowing, right? And and to be in that space where we're so lonely and so desperate and so broken and so wounded and wounded. The kind of help that God brings when we were talking about earlier is not the the shiny teeth, health and wealth help. I think because so often our circumstances in this world don't change as desperately yeah. as we want them and as understandably as we want them to change, they they don't change. But I think the kind of help among the help that God brings is is presence of I see you and and even in your suffering or even if you are moving down these last shadows uh, where the valley of death is that I think God greets us there. And he says, I see you. Um, I walk through these valleys too. And, or in the, in an emotional, painful breakup of a marriage, um, I, I see you among the many starting places that we could start with in a relationship with God. I can't think of a better one than this is not wishful thinking. This actually is the God of history. It's, it's the God of scripture. When right, when I think rightly understood is the God who, who sees us, the God Mm -hmm. who sees. And he, I mean, he saw Hagar in the wilderness and, he just sees and and brings a different kind of help. And so when it says taste and see that the Lord is good, that's sort of this idea of a knowing or knowing in the Bible is an intimate, reflective, emotional kind of knowing. It's not a theological knowing. And that's, I think, what you're talking about. And there's something about an ability to navigate life then and the, and the trials and tragedy of life when you know that you have a God who sees you. So I don't know. I mean, just kind of and I get that it. kind of Being help, right? Being seen by that God is so... 
scary. Oh, it's super <laughs> in scary. In so many ways. Super scary. But it's but there is something so freeing about it. That's I mean, again, God will never leave nor forsake. It doesn't mean we always sense his presence. It doesn't mean yeah. that it doesn't mean any of those things. It just means that his faithfulness, we've we've said it before, but it's so worth saying again. I just think God's faithfulness is not evidenced by how well our circumstances are going because we live in a broken, uh, effed up world, mm-hmm. and and we are both. Man, again, you got three. Uh, I, got I know, one. I know, but I don't say the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I know, I know, but it's, it's his faithfulness is evidence that he he sees us in the midst of all of it. And I just think about your life and my life, and I'm sure maybe you didn't even know it when you were so upset at 15, 16, 17, 18, mm-hmm. but God still saw you and still saw me when I was a pastoral fraud and. Absolutely, and sees, yeah. you know, all of this sort of stuff God sees. And I, what a great starting point. I love this book that you brought as, as a way so to good. kind of... Maybe you'll read it now. <laughs> I have 14 books. I have such good intentions when it comes oh. to reading books. It's such good intentions. I usually get through at least two chapters and then I get oh, a little ADD so and move so on. So about 3% of the book. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a commitment right now to do better. Oh, Okay. <laughs> it's I not, expect it's not weekly even updates first. on okay. the podcast. Uh, we will do that. I will. I'm yeah. going to pick up this book, and by this time, so what's the name of the book again? It's unapologetic. Unapologetic and what by is Francis Bufford. What by Francis Bufford? Isn't there like a little subtitle to it? Yeah, and it's why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. Yeah, I love that. So how do we wrap this up? I think this is a great point. If the point of this whole thing yeah. is that we're a bunch of f ups and that God still sees us, <laughs> that's four. <laughs> How how would you, dear Anna, mm. summarize this uh, episode as you wrap us up here today? I would just say, I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about the church and theology and the Bible and and all of that. And I I would say that it can be really important to separate your experience of God from your experience of the church as an institution. Because mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. that was something that I didn't know how to do for a very long time. And from there, my experiences of God was what informed my theology not the other way around. I love that. Because I think one thing that the church teaches us, sort of, but in a way that implies that this isn't actually what's real, is they they tell us that God is accessible. They tell us that we can pray and that God is right there and all of these things. But then all of the kind of subliminal messages of whatever else they're teaching is often that, but you don't know. Mm-hmm. And you don't get to talk about who God is. And that's our job to teach you that. And I think to an extent that's true, but also I think it's really, really important to pay attention to your experiences of God. Yeah. And and that mystery and relationship with God can live hand in hand. Absolutely. It's so important that we don't yeah. have to try to define and o- o- overly articulate everything that's going on, though I think it's really important our ideas about God matter, but not to sacrifice what's actually the heart of this thing, which is the relational ongoing journey with God. I. I, I, again, I just have so many people in my mind that I know we've just, for for whatever reason, we've heard from a lot of people in these six, this is, I think, our seventh episode yeah, yeah. together. Then, And I just know so many stories. And, and I'm just really, for this week, for both my own life, but for so many people to just know that God sees, yeah. I, I think is just a, a great starting point for all of this. And to to let it be what it is, let it be emotional, let it be instinctual and and live in that space, even though it's really uncomfortable because you don't, no, hmm. you don't know what's going to happen. You can't prove it's real. You don't like all of those things. And I think as soon as you start letting go of those ideas, the real sweetness and kind of intrinsic smallness of yourself kind of starts to come out and and you start letting yourself be in 
like uninhibited relationship with God. Yeah. And and I think Ashley with other people. This would form the foundation of the kind of gathering. Have I ever given you my definition of the church? I can wrap it up no. with that. Have I ever done yeah. that? Yeah. Really? I would love to hear it. I would love. Okay. Well, why don't I give it to you? And this will end our, our seventh episode of Deeper Magic. So here's a definition for you for the church, Anna. I know you haven't heard it. Okay. Yeah. This um, is new to me. It is the people of God following Jesus, inhabited by the Spirit, to shine the light of the now incoming kingdom into the midst of this dark world. And it's, let's just modify it with this mm. episode um, the light of the people who know that they have been seen by God. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody, to Deeper Magic. This is uh, Peter, and I am with Anna, and we'll catch you again next week. Bye, guys. Deeper Magic is produced by Audio on the Rocks, and our music for this episode is Auroras of Saturn by Music L Files. You can head on over to filmmusic.io find that there, all licensed under Creative Commons 4.0.